listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome back to our show Ned Wolpin, uh, Associate Dean of Graduate Programs at St. John's College in Santa Fe. Ned, welcome back to our show. It's been four years since you've been on the show. Welcome back. It's been that long. It's been four years. How are you? Are you doing well? I'm doing great. So look, when you've been on the show before, we've spoken of Nietzsche, we've spoken of Plato. Today you wanted to talk about Alexis de Tocqueville, in particular his work, Democracy in America. So why don't we start with, tell us a little about Tocqueville. Um, who was he? His, put him in a historical and philosophical context. Yeah, he was a French nobleman who uh, decided to travel to America in the 1830s. Uh, and if I'm, if I've get the, got this right, he was actually there to really investigate, um, sanitation techniques, uh, and processes in the United States, but, but became obsessed with the way American democracy was working. And indeed, the reason he wrote this book is because he saw that Europe was going to become democratic. There was no, ifs, ands, or buts around it. The, the, the world was changing. Right. And he, came to see that the United States, uh, for better or worse, gave um, all people the ability to see what democracy was going to look like and also ways in which to manage that change. So when you say he allowed or saw that people could see what democracy would look like for better or for worse, that's very much part of the part of the book which is not, I mean, it's a glowing praise of democracy but also it's, it's faults. Yeah, in fact, I'm not even convinced that I would call it a glowing praise. Go on, go on. Um, I, I think he, he sees the inevitability of democracy uh, okay. and sees in the United States some things which are useful and powerful and, um, and, and hopeful, but he sees that, that the world in a whole bunch of ways was going to flatten that right. art was going to change, that people's ideas were going to change, and that it was all going to be from the source of of this political change. That um, that the that the world, in many ways, was going to be dumbed down. Right. Um, and so and so he 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 wants to see the possibilities and to highlight that. But I think he really wants to do that in order to avoid some of the deepest sh- uh, shortcomings. And so summarizing because it is a big book yeah it's a it's a big book. it's a big book what what did he see as some of the biggest potential problems yeah so there are um it, it goes all over the place it um there are political problems um from uh from different regional concerns mm-hmm. there are there are concerns that um democracy gives everyone the feeling that they are and we would regard this as 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 obvious and and unproblematic, but that everyone has an equal say in the political process, and that the end. But he sees that as as 
as potentially useful, but also can lead to a kind of deep tyranny of thinking. Mm -hmm. So that freedom, the thing that we think is the most important aspect of democracy, he's worried that freedom and liberty, the word that he uses more often, uh, is actually in danger in a new way, in ways that, that people thinking that this would lead to, that, that democratic change would simply lead to progress and liberty, liberty and freedom for people, that this might lead to a new kind of tyranny that we'd never seen before. This is the tyranny of the majority? That's the one that is, is most concerning to him. Yeah, that, that, and it happens in many ways. Um, it can happen politically when you've got majorities controlling, let's say, branches of the government or right. the government entirely. Um, and, and in fact, we, you know, if you go to the Federalist Papers, the fa the the document, the the series of of articles that the that three of our founders wrote, they were concerned about that too, but saw mechanisms in our government that could limit that, right. not the least of which is the size of our country. Um, Tocqueville sees this in a different way. He, he says people are going to start thinking alike so that even if you're in the minority, you're actually in, in the frame of thinking that everyone's thinking so that there's no real difference in thought. So you could, you could be arguing for whatever bill on one side and the majority votes the other way. You're still within a kind of frame of reference that everyone's agreeing with, and we don't see outside of that. We, we see that in this day and age. Um, we, we see actually the battles all the time right. between, let's say, the Republicans and the Democrats. Right. What we're not seeing is the deep and maybe unconscious ways that, that these two parties are actually agreeing with each other such that radically different points of view are never actually never come to light. You get some members of Congress, for example, or some people outside of the political system talking about radically alternative right. viewpoints. Let's say, for example, an argument for real socialism yes. or a kind of radical libertarianism on the other side. Right, right. But those, but those points of view don't really have much. Um, what do you want to say? Uh, uh, traffic. They don't actually get much airtime um, in in our political community in the debates we have. So that so that do we want um, social security right. this way or do we want it this other way? That's sort of the limits of our conversations. And Tocqueville sees that as as a real uh, closing of the mind of of viewpoints. And other ways that this tyranny of the majority. Um, uh, manifest itself is is a kind of limitation on what people think a good life might look like. In an aristocracy, you have deep, deep inequalities, and I'm not talking about the inequalities that we sure. see, which are huge in our country, but but ones from someone controlling all the power, having all the money, opposed only by serfs right. who have no political purchase or, or power and no money, obviously. Um, in that realm, Tocqueville sees that the possibility of thinking radically differently is there. In democracy, where everyone thinks of themselves as an agent, as a, mm -hmm. as a person who has power and equal to everyone else, we tend to not see other points of views in the ways that we would nor in, in other systems. In other words, he's tying our ability to think freely to what political system we're in. And that's right. an interesting thing that we often don't think about. Well, having come from England, 
for me, it's fascinating because when people, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Democrats, Republicans, and people right. say, well, the Democrats are left wing. And I think that's not left wing. That's right. Right. And so that for me is really quite surprising. There is no real formative left wing in this country. That's right. And and that is, so that I think certainly supports what you're saying that it's it's flattened and narrowed. But at the same time, England is a democracy and, and does have that. So I wonder partly why, you know, you could say the American experiment, democratic experiment. That's right. And I mean the, the democracy, not the particular party. The American democratic experiment might agree with Tocqueville, but not necessarily the English one, which has, or the European one, That's which right. has much greater depth and breadth, rather, I should say, which goes from the very radical left to like neo-Nazism That's right. um, on the right. So. I'm not sure that it's an issue of democracy as opposed to the American system. Yeah, it, um, that's bluntly what I'm saying, which yeah. is, isn't it actually an American problem, not a democracy problem? Yeah, so the, so the, this goes in, this cuts in interesting ways that Tocqueville can help us with. So it is true that in the American political system, we have two what we call catch-all parties, and they may be more or less catch-all these days. Um, but we don't really have alternatives, right. political alternatives. Um, and, in, and in Europe, and particularly places like uh, Italy. Yeah, sure. You have you have a massive array of parties uh, in England to a certain extent, but not quite as many. Um, and you can you can look to the differences in the political systems for that. What you do find, though, and Tocqueville is really useful about this, is that in the systems that have the most what we might say political differences are actually least different in terms of the administration of their regimes. That is to say, they all have national governments that are administering, for example, education systems yes. that are uh, not locally controlled. They're all nationally controlled. They have a, a, um, a social safety net that is nationally controlled, not run by local uh, organizations, so that they have a kind of deep um, administrative uh, unification of their countries nice. that is given a kind of – that people are given a kind of out in their political expression, but it actually doesn't lead to admin actual differences on the ground for people. Right, right. Whereas in the United States, and this is Tocqueville's point, I'm not, right. and I'm not saying this is better or worse. I'm saying this is Tocqueville and this is quite possibly America. For all of the political centralization we have, and that happens both in terms of, of the power, let's say, of the presidency, right. of the national government generally, um, the fact that there are two political parties. We have actually what we would call administrative decentralization, yes, right. where, for example, we think that it's perfectly reasonable for local school boards to control what the students are learning. Um, we find that we have all these federal programs that are that are supposed to be national, and yet they're all administered by states right. differently. Right. For example, just as a, an example that just popped into my head, uh, when Obamacare came out, and there was a, there was an, an, ex, an, an a, a part of that that allowed for the expansion of Medicaid yep. for uh, people in in all the country, it was reserved to the states to decide whether they would take advantage of that, right, um, and, or not. And and so these kinds of administrative moves that the United States has may lead to a kind of particular version of centralization or, or limitation of thought that looks different than the political changes and, and alternatives you have in Europe. But the result in Europe 
is actually manifested on the ground in ways that aren't in the United States. So right, it gets right. very messy. And so the and so the the question is, America has found one version of that kind of formula, and Europe has found it found another. I think Tocqueville's worry about a kind of flattening of thought still happens. I think I think that's fascinating, and, and we're going to need to take a break. But um, I have to ask, since you mentioned it before the break, when you said about you know local schools and so on, one of the things that I find very challenging, again, this is coming from a European perspective, right. um, is is local school boards banning books. Oh God, yeah. And um, and so I don't see that as a strength when um, when um, avenues of learning are being limited. I don't see that. Um, I I saw in my cursory reading of this book, I saw that he seems to see that as a strength, um, the the local government control as opposed to the federal government That's control. Right. But you wouldn't have that in the UK. That's right. And so I I mean I think I'm hoping it's okay for me to disagree with Tocqueville here, but but. What he sees as a strength, I see as the potential for um, tyranny. That's right, um, and, and that to, that to me is really challenging. Yeah, so so it seems to me that th- this is a challenge, and you see this. I don't think he is saying that the local uh, power, that the sovereignty of the people, which really comes from the local level and moves outward, is. Um, means that good policy will happen. Ah, okay. <laughs> he, I think he, what he's saying is that that leads to the basis of a kind of uh, sense of political engagement such that everyone sees their interests involved. Right. And that that's, as opposed to people saying, I don't have any, um, I have no way of even imagining how to influence policy because it's all coming down from gotcha. London Paris, wherever you want to say, there's a there's a kind of alienation that he sees um, possible in centralized administrative states that he doesn't see in de- decentralized states. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really do. We have to take a break. Um, you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Ned Wolpin from St. John's College here in Santa Fe. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Ned Wolpin uh, from St. John's College in Santa Fe. Um, we were talking before the break, we're talking about Tocqueville's uh, democracy in America. And you mentioned Tocqueville's concern about the flattening of thought. And that immediately brings up to me, uh, brings up for me in the internet age, how much um, thought has 
unflattened in some sense how the dialogue seems to political dialogue in particular even dialogue about basic things like health and and what does and and who is an expert and so on uh in science and taking care of children and education and everything else to me it seems to have exploded in a sort of radical diversity to the point that it's difficult to say that it's flattened or am i missing something yeah so if i were to take Tocqueville's angle on this, and yes. I obviously see that you can find any opinion out there um, and 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 make money off it too. Sure, um, is that is that what happens? Is is that authorities of of different opinions lose their stature? Right, and and so uh, the fact that anyone can spout anything doesn't sound like a real difference of opinion. It sounds like. Uh, what do I want to call it? A bad mall of of rampant nonsense that you can purchase. I see. Okay. Um, and so, and so, real diversity of, opi- uh, of of opinions, of diversity of thought, diversity of philosophical stances, really considered thought, actually doesn't happen. What happens now is that people look upon this as a monetizing. Activity and he reduces in uh, he he says that that often uh, democracy reduces all thought to a kind of self interest to a kind of what can I get from this <laughs> and so yes yeah, sure you can find different quote unquote opinions but are they actually opinions or driven by a kind of self promotion by a kind of uh, monetization of a market um, see I I think I, I listen. You always challenge me. It's wonderful. I I agree. I think maybe part of the dialogue nowadays, political dialogue, is like, is the moon real? You know, are vaccines healthy? And so I I agree with you that it's not necessary. So maybe in some sense, the intellectual debate has flattened because it's become just fighting for basic principles of, but here is the science. And so the question is what to do with the science, not is the science real? So I wonder if maybe that's part of it, that it looks like diversity of thought. That's right. But actually it's just fighting for sanity. That's right. And, and, And I think this is sort of, um, he talks about, Tocqueville talks about a kind of, um, almost a kind of, uh, um, insanity that arises right. out of a kind of frenzy everyone's a part of it everyone's a, everyone's an authority everyone's right. speaking but there's a kind of unthought um impulsive impulsiveness about this that that doesn't lead to real thinking and diversity of thought it's fascinating because i i even experienced it online and i'll share an opinion and someone will will respond and clearly they've done five minutes of searching about what judaism is right who am i to tell them that's right and um and your you know your five minute youtube video isn't really the same as my whatever it is expertise and training and so on but so yeah maybe that is that flattening of thought um that that everyone i'm not sure it's it's from monetization though i think a lot of this is from fear that's right uh, from alienation and from f- alienation because so because so much of our intellectual um our society is so technological and so specialized now that people who aren't specialists feel deeply alienated and need to feel like they are specialists 
That's right, and that that may be true. And I, you know, and again, I'm extrapolating from Tocqueville sure. um, in in saying the monetization part. Although I would say there are certain actors who are monetizing sure, it, sure. using it as a commodity. Um, the people who are then responding and and drumming up the support are those people who are thinking um, not about deep um, principles. As much as self-interest, and this is, I'm trying to bring back to Tocqueville because he's very much focused on everyone is looking at everything through the lens of self-interest and that that is, well, we often think that's a perfectly fine thing. You should be looking out for yourself and and self-interest, but there's a way in which if if that's the only lens through through which we look at everything in in life, we're going to be limiting um, the the possibilities. I'll give you an example, and I think this is actually really powerful for for um, in Tocqueville's book. He talks about religion, and yep. and actually this yep. is maybe subject you know something about. Um, he talks about religion as being subsumed under self interest. Right. That is to say, why do we practice religion in a democracy? Well, it's actually either at best to make sure that we. Um, uh, uh, do right so that we can um, have a good afterlife, right, or, ev- right, sure. or even worse, um, um, that maybe if you do right, you make some money. So he's very, and we know that we that there are certain uh, religious leaders that are there's a gospel of prosperity, absolutely, and this is this is an American. A phenomenon, yep. but we can't say that it's not also really a deeply democratic phenomenon. So even our deepest aspirations and meditations in life are, are as it were, flattened in some way, um, just as we are in a situation where, you know, in, in over the course of the history, you say, finally, everyone, in some sense, is free and equal. When, when you're sharing about sort of American individualism and it reminds me, and I have to quote it, Hillel's aphorism, if I'm, you know, not for myself, who is for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? That's right. And that's the part of the tension here, isn't that's it? That's exactly it. Exactly. So community, right? The thing that we sort of want to say is the antidote to excessive self-interest. Community is something that democracies have a hard time really developing. Yeah, Right. It was much easier, and I'm not saying this is therefore something we should prefer. <laughs> I got to watch myself, but uh, but in when the when there were nobles and there were serfs, right? The serfs were cared for in some modest way by the nobles. There was a community there, um, and a community of, and also a community of of being absolutely pauperized, sure. where people weren't thinking of simply about themselves. That kind of perspective is lost in a democracy. So I guess this leads on, and we've only got five minutes left, but I guess this leads on to how is it possible for him to have admired democracy or seen positive benefits in American democracy uh, as this bastion of potential equality at a time of slavery? Yeah. Yeah. How, how could he have done this? That? And this is one of those, you know, conundrums that, that Tocqueville himself recognized. Um, first off, he, uh, let me just say this. When he was talking about the sort of trajectories of, of equality and what democracy might look like, he was f- thinking that the, that the New England township was the sort of most extreme version of this, the w- version which we can see the future best. Right. He did regard the South as, as somehow um, trying to bring forth an aristocratic 
um, uh, bearing. Uh, and in fact, it's not surprising that our founding leaders were all from the South, right? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, um, uh, that, that they were aristocrats. What he saw was that the economic transformation that was occurring was going to lead to a political transformation and that slavery had to and was going to die because of that and that the pathway that they were on was also a path to democracy ultimately. He didn't see that as a viable long-term option for the United States because he right. saw, he, again, just like in Europe, he saw that the path towards democracy and equality was, was un, unbending. So, with just a few minutes left, would Tocqueville describe America as a democracy today? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so, so I think he would, not in the way that we necessarily talk about a democracy versus a republic or something like that, but he would say the, the rabid egalitarianism, even with the massive differences in wealth, right. um, has led to... A kind of a kind of democracy, which again may not be free. Right. In fact, he says that he says very clearly that people will will give up freedom for equality, that they will, that liberty is less important to them than equality. And I think you can see in the current United States, we're so interested and focused on making sure that that the situations. Are, are somehow or another equal, not necessarily in outcomes, um, but, but in, in such a way that there's not a, a fundamental distinction among people that we might actually be perfectly willing to give up freedom. Interesting. Fascinating. Thank you. I know you wanted to share a little something about the Graduate Institute. In, in just two minutes, sure. just, share, just share a little. Yeah, so l let me just say this. Tocqueville's Democracy in America is one of many books we read at St. John's, um, and particularly in the Graduate Institute, which is for people in all walks of life. Um, we read classic works um, in the liberal arts in Western civilization, and then in the Eastern Classics program, we have a program where we read phenomenal and foundational texts uh, from Asia, from India, China, and Japan. These are available to our community members, both in person and online, both full-time and part-time. It's, it's an extraordinary way to really ask the deepest questions that are, are, are pushing you in life and, um, and are bothering you, and it's a place where real joy takes place. Well, thank you. Um as always, it's just, it's just an absolute pleasure to talk to you, to learn from you, to, to just touch on, um, on a text with you. Um, and I, I so love you bringing the variety of texts when you come to the show and, and, and opening up different ways of thinking. So just thank you for being on our show. Happy to be here. And hopefully at some point you'll come back again with another text Happy and, to. and challenge me. Happy to. So thank you to Ned Wolpen from St. John's College. Thank you again for sharing such deep insights into a really interesting thinker, really important thinker for today. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.